Welcome to the podcast edition of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. I'm your host, Pat Braden, broadcasting to you over the virtual airwaves from the Love Shack studio here in the heart of Old Town Yellowknife Northwest Territories. Now, I'm a bass player, Chapman stick player, singer-songwriter, and I've been playing music throughout the North since about 1977. As a young musician, I was caught up in the explosion of popular music in the world through the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. As I got older, I thought there must have been the same thing happening up here, just in a different place and on a different scale. So in 2003, I started to interview the older players who taught me most of what I know today, and many more musicians that I'd only ever heard of. My intention was to have an accessible and free place where anyone could go to learn about these players and the musical times and the lives that they lived. Over the years, I've collected 30-plus interviews and created an archival website at www.musiciansofthemidnightsun.com. Some of these interviews are quite long, so I wanted to bring the core of their stories to a more accessible format. So I created this series of podcasts to continue the celebration of the musical lives of these northern musicians who performed in northern Canada from the 1950s through to the mid-1970s. Thanks for tuning in. Please send any questions and comments to me through this website. I hope you enjoy this podcast episode of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. In the mid-1980s, I was working a straight job, playing some, but no band or big projects on the burner. I heard about a guitar player by the name of Jim Lawrence, who had just moved to town. I was playing with a country singer at the time, and we brought Jim in to make up a trio for an upcoming gig. I don't think we even rehearsed. We told him what songs we were playing and the key signatures, met at the soundcheck and ran them down. As I was walking out of the hall after soundcheck, Jim stayed on the stage to play some more. He stopped me in my tracks when he started singing Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain, and I swear to God, it was Willie Nelson up there singing and playing that song. Later on, drummer Norman Glowich and I were asked to play at an event at the Northern Arts and Cultural Center, so we called up Jim to put some tunes together for this short set. I don't think we rehearsed for this one either. Jim called up a set of blues songs, some very classy but kind of obscure from the normal blues jam fair. The impromptu trio rocked the stage that night, and we resolved to keep it going. We went on to call the trio the Red Devil Rockin' Blues Band and played many a packed house at the local float-based bar for many years. The band came alive on the stage, Jim laying down a solid grinding groove. Norman and I would climb on board and we would take each song to some new and uncharted territory. I loved it because it was mostly spontaneous improvisation over these infectious blues grooves that got so big and so loud and went on forever. Jim was a master of weaving his irreverent stream-of-consciousness lyrics over these outrageous blues rock jams. No one was safe from his poignant and cutting narrative. It was good to sit down with Jim to do this interview and to learn of his early years as a young musician before he came north. His lifetime of experience, living and playing through generations and newborn genres of popular music is worthy of documentation on that aspect alone. 
Easily, the first two-thirds of the two-hour interview is filled with Jim's first 20 years or so of playing music in eastern Canada before he landed in Inuvik. I highly recommend that you listen to his entire interview on the Musicians of the Midnight Sun website for his full story. It is such a rich and flowing narrative, I did not have the heart to chop it up to accommodate an abbreviated podcast episode, so I made the executive decision to pick up the story from when Jim answered a newspaper advertisement. Wanted. Teachers for Canada's Northwest Territories. Interviews at the Lord Beaverbrook Hotel in Fredericton, da blah, da blah, da blah. Got in the car, went down for the interviews. I thought there wasn't much chance of really getting a job because of my peripatetic background and things that had happened. So I went down just sort of in my jeans and a plaid shirt and my, my work boots. I, I was living on a on a farm. We were living on a farm with friends at the time. I was sort of, you know, working like a, a farm guy. Went down for the interviews. A lot of the applicants were dressed, you know, head to toe. They had the suits and everything. I'm led to a little room upstairs for my interview. Uh, my papers looked good, and I said, okay, you, you'll be interviewing one of the superintendents. Walk into the little room, there's a man with a brush cut, older man with a short brush cut sitting behind a desk looking really stern. His name is Joe Cody. I sit, I sit on the other side of the desk, and he says, your qualifications look pretty good. Where would you like to be? And I had looked at maps of the Northwest Territories, and for some reason I thought, I want to be isolated. I've had enough of people. I don't want to play music. I want to just get away, do my teaching, make some money for once. <laughs> I said, Nahani Boot. He says, ooh, he says, well, that's an interesting place, he says. But, you know, he says, I've been reading your letter here and your uh, what the woman told me from your phone call. And now I've talked to you a bit. He did talk to me a little bit. He says, not far. And I know where you'd fit in. It's a place called Inuvik. Are you familiar with it? I said, well, I've seen the name on the map. But, and he pointed his finger at me. He says, you, you belong in Inuvik. <laughs> I go back, I tell Lily, I think I've been hired. I think we're going uh, we're going to Inuvik, Northwest Territories. The checks arrived in the mail like magic. The plane tickets arrived in the mail. The money arrived in the mail. Health forms arrived in the mail. Filled out the health forms, sent in the thing, took the tickets, went to the Fredericton Airport with minimal possessions. Joe Cody said, it's all there. There's a house for you with vilest furniture and cooking pots. Blah, 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 blah. This little bit of stuff we had, we put into storage. And then I looked at the guitar case with the Les Paul, <laughs> with the Les Paul Jr. in it. It almost went into storage. But I loved it so much. I didn't have to play it. I just had to open it up every now and then and look at it. That's all I had to do. It was like an object of sacred object. So I said, no, we're going to take the guitar. So I had to carry that. I couldn't put that with the luggage. A cardboard case. I took duct tape. And I, I just sealed that cardboard case. looked like a mummy coffin. I just sealed it right up. I, Took it, we got on an Air Canada flight and made it to Montreal and touched down and made it to Toronto and touched down and made it to Calgary and touched down and made it to Edmonton, the Edmonton Municipal Airport. You know, 1971, 72. Landing in the middle of the city, ears popping. Get out of the plane in the Municipal Airport. We're all 
There's about seven of us going north. Uh, only a couple with families. And James was still young. James was going into grade five or six. Shuffled to the back of the airport where we physically sat on our luggage, all soft luggage, and waited for the the DC-8. The, what a, the DC-8. This awful, rickety-looking plane is taxing up. We all file on. We're sitting in, basically sitting in metal chairs. <laughs> DC-8 takes off. I don't know where it landed. It takes off from Edmonton. It goes down at Norman Wells. It went down somewhere else. Uh, maybe Yellen. I can't recall. Suddenly, there we are in Anuvik. At, uh, it's August. We arrive in Anuvik at midnight, and the sun is up. And I say to myself, wait a minute. <laughs> I knew about I was an educated person. I knew about Canada. And I said, but to experience it that first time, come down the ramp. There's Joe Cody with a car. Picks us up. Drives us into downtown Anuvik through the dust and the gravel. All the roads are mud. There's no pavement. There's no sidewalks. It's all boardwalks. Drive by what was the the mad trapper. It had a swinging door, like <laughs> a saloon door, <laughs> swinging doors to go in. Drives us to a row house, which was the government housing, into the row house, nice vilest furniture, most of the things we needed. We'd put in a barge order before we went up, and the barge order arrived, and I went to work at Samuel Hearn Secondary School. And uh, that's about it. There I was. There we were, established in Anuvik, happy, making money, more money than I had ever seen in my life. Uh, my beginning salary in 1964 in Oromocto was $3,250. And now I was making $30,250. Life couldn't have been better. Uh we're about three weeks in, four weeks in. I'm on to the drum, the local paper. I'm checking things out. I see a little ad. Saturday night, arena dance featuring Louis Goose. I showed it to Lily. I said, look at this. I said, I said, Louis Goose. What a great name for a band. <laughs> I thought the name of the band was Louis Goose. You know, I thought, wow, you know, I wish I thought of that name. Go up to the arena dance. I see the band. Pretty good. You know, they're playing Neil Diamond numbers. The people are dancing. They're a good drummer. A couple of guys on guitar. Got a uh, front singer out there with looking uh, pretty commanding on stage. Good bass player. Good bass player. I don't know anything about them. I start asking people. I say, great band, this Louis Goose band. Somebody informed me, no, it's not the Louis Goose band. It's Louis Goose. That's Louis, the guy singing. That's Louis Goose. I, uh, I didn't know people could be named Louis Goose or Dorothy Chocolate or Celine Football or Kathy Rattlesnake or Deborah Squirrel. I, I didn't know about the animal names, right? I came home. I told her, I said, man, there was a band up there. The place was rocking. I said, they were pretty good. Uh, time goes on, time goes on, time goes on. At that time, there were no what were known as jam sessions. There really were no jam sessions. And suddenly, it all starts dawning on me that these are the boom years in Anuvik. Dome Petroleum is 
drilling. The, the guys, they got two weeks on, one week off. They're coming into town with rolls of money. The first time I ever saw money rolled up with elastic bands. You know, rolls, bank rolls, literally. There was the Mackenzie Hotel with its infamous zoo going six nights a week with bands from maybe Seattle or California. They were flying in bands from California. There was the Eskimo Inn uh, with bands from California, Edmonton, Calgary. There was the Mad Trapper with bands from California. Uh, the bands changed every week. There was the Legion with bands. There was the uh, DND messes with bands. There was the community dances with bands. There was the arena dance with bands. Uh, pretty soon the lights went on for me. <laughs> $100 a man. I can teach school. My act is down teaching school. Why not take an arena dance now and then? Because, you know, they didn't want Louie all the time at the arena dance, you know, not every week. And the California bands and stuff couldn't take it because they were working Saturday night. Saturday night was a big night in the bar. Oh, I sniffed around and asked around. There was a guy up there, I think he's from Edmonton, Gary Selman. He was a drummer. He wasn't playing with Louie. And uh, he said, yeah, I'll go for it. And uh, I got together with him. He turned out to be a pretty solid drummer. And I needed a bass player, and so I, back of my mind, I said, I remember that bass player. Was he was really hot. Search around, ask around. I meet a guy named Willie Gordon. Willie shows up. I don't know where he ever got it. He's got a, he's got a Fender Precision bass. That was a good sign. <laughs> I never did find out where he got the Fender Precision. <laughs> I spoke to Willie. Willie didn't speak too much. He was a big silent guy. He was only 19. He was just out of high school, I think. 19. Gary Selman was pretty young, too. By this time, like I'm sort of an older guy. Spoke to Willie. I said, we should get together. And he was working at CBC. And there were lots of studios available at CBC after ours. He went down. It took, spent about a half an hour getting the duct tape off my, <laughs> off my Gibson. Scrounged up some strings from somewhere. I'm not sure where. Went to the CBC studio, sat down with Gary Selman and Willie Gordon, and I don't know what we did first. I forget. You know, Johnny Be Good. Boom. We could all play Johnny Be Good. That was enough for me. I booked an arena dance. <laughs> $500 a night. Three of us. Way to go. Louie always took in five or six. Only I'd take in three. <laughs> We go up, we play the arena dance, and not to sound conceited, but it was a piece of cake. band was good, we were playing standard rock and roll, I wasn't trying to play any originals, just trying to get through the thing, people were dancing, I was having fun, we got paid $500. Uh, I phoned up a music store on Whitehorse, ordered a PV Musician amp with a bottom with four 10-inch heads, ordered a Shure microphone, ordered another Gibson guitar, ordered a stand, ordered strings. It all arrived on a truck or by airplane, I can't remember. And uh, ordered a PA set, a Yamaha PA set, four channels, boys, four channels. What a PA set that was. Got ourselves set up. And then the time came when a band was going out of uh, the Trapper. I went to the Trapper 
bartender said, I got a band for you. We'll do a week here. I forget what they were paying. I was an inordinate amount of money. It's money I could have only dreamed of playing music before. And they were flying, they were paying the airfare for these bands to come up from the So here they didn't have to pay airfare. I don't know what it was for the week. It was over a thousand bucks each. We went into the Mad Trapper. You know, we killed. It was a small place. People wanted to dance. We played and played and played. And one thing led to another, and then there was a week at the Mackenzie, and then there was a week at the Eskimo Inn, and we could take a couple of weeks off and then play an arena dance. And uh, to say that I was... Uh, to say that I was sitting on top of the world, <laughs> well, I'm sitting on... I started doing that number with feeling, <laughs> because I was. I started designing... I, I was teaching art in English in Anuvik. I started designing T-shirts for Place of Man, silkscreen T-shirts. They were flying off the shelves, and I was getting... I was doing oil company T-shirts, was drilling rigs and stuff. Money was coming in from the T-shirts. Money was coming in from the band. This went on for... Well, I didn't really start seriously until my second year in. And that went on for the next two years. And I don't know whether it was like a fool or whether it was the wisest thing I ever did in my life. I still have a lot of feelings about it. Uh, I decided to go back to New Brunswick and pursue another degree because the degree I had, which was a teaching degree, was going out of style. And people wanted people with a, to teach English, you needed a Bachelor of Arts with Honors English, like to get a good teaching gig eh? anywhere in Canada. Well, I resigned from Inuvik. And we left and we returned to uh, New Brunswick. And I did the university thing, blah, blah, finished that off. Bought a place in the country, in New Brunswick, and tried to settle down with local jobs. Uh, tried to make a living uh, in a country band, uh, where and I was right back at $100 a night, which in 1975-76 was not the $100 a night it was in the 1950s. And... Uh, not feeling desperate, but wondering what to do, wondering what to do. While we were in Inuvik, Lily uh, worked a couple of jobs. She worked in construction. She was an aide at kindergarten, blah, blah, blah. Flew all over the north as a dental assistant. She'd been to, she's been to every community in the north, all of them. Lots of experiences. Worked for a guy up there. A lot of people in the north will know him, uh, Ted Curtis. He was running a construction company. Get a phone call one day. He says, you know, Jim, you might be interested, but there's an English position open at uh, Samuel Hearn Secondary School, where I used to have taught. He says, you should get on the phone to the principal. Got on the phone to the principal, made the deal. So it was three years in Inuvik, three years in New Brunswick. And then... Sure enough, by mail, the airplane tickets, the health forms, the blah, the blah, the blah, the blah. Get on the plane. Great big jet direct Edmonton this time. <laughs> Great big plane almost direct to Inuvik this time. No more DC-8s or whatever. Land in Inuvik. Uh, I've got the Gibson with me. I've got the Les Paul with me. 
as soon as I got there, I realized the boom the boom years were over. 79 to 82 were the bust years. There were no more bands coming in from California, etc. So I didn't really have a lot of pretensions about playing. Teaching school, working away, no jamming happening, strangely enough, around town. A couple of bands, uh, Louis Goose. Louis Goose was there working every now and then. Louis and Willie. Uh, Willie was not interested in playing a bass again. He was a fiddle player by now. And uh, Willie and Louis working at CBC, very good to my son. My son was in high school. He had got a job at CBC, and Louis mentored him at CBC, which I'm always thankful for. But I looked around, and I realized the market was still there because there were three places featuring music, the Eskimo Inn, the Mackenzie, the Mackenzie Hotel, and, of course, the Venerable Mad Trapper. And the money was still really good. So, sure enough, I got a band together. And uh, this time the band consisted of... Uh, well, actually, Willie did play bass for a short time with this band. I needed a drummer. There were no drummers, and I heard a little punky kids band rehearsing one time back of the high school, and I looked in, and there was a sort of a tall, skinny-looking, shy kind of guy pounding away on a bad set of drums. His name was Howie McLeod. I walked up, I said, you know, would you... I've got a little band going. Would you like to come and play drums? And he didn't talk a lot. He said, "Yeah, okay." So we set up. Well, sure enough, he could play. He wasn't great, but I knew that. I knew that with a few gigs, he was going to be okay. Didn't have any drums. Phoned down to Tony George, my old guy from the early '60s, who was running a music store in Fredericton. He sent me up a set of Rogers, nice little set of White Rogers, small bass drum, snare. Nice little zildjian cymbals, if you can imagine. The drums arrive at the airport. We go pick them up. I give them to Howie. Howie doesn't know how to put them together. <laughs> he knew nothing about drums. <laughs> Between <laughs> Willie and myself and my wife Lily, who was very adept that way, and Howie, we got the kit together. Got the kit together and got set up. And got a job at the Mad Trapper six nights a week. Honked it out there for a few weeks, and then Willie had had enough of it. Uh, decided he wanted to work at CBC, be a fiddle player. He didn't want to play the bass anymore. Uh, so I needed a bass player, so I phoned up Tony George down in Fredericton and said, Tony, I need a bass player. And he convinced a young guitar player down there who hadn't played a lot of bass, a guy named Rob McPhee, convinced him to a fly up. I sent him down a ticket, he flew up. And we played the Trapper for, I don't know, three months, six nights a week. Straight. Straight. Full house every night. I don't know how much we were making. thousand plus each a week. We were making money. Yeah. Making money as a musician. That band uh, lived its life out. Rob wanted to go back to Fredericton. He'd had his stint with it, you know, six nights a week for two, three months. Okay, that's good, Rob. Uh... Howie had found employment. I'm not sure what it was. And the trapper had had enough of us, and so that dissipated. So I guess about six months went by, and once again, I didn't play. I just sat back, and I was happy. You know, I'd made some money and put a little bit in the bank, making good money teaching. And uh, But then the time came. Uh, for some reason, there, there were no bands in town except one. There were still three bars, and there were arena dances, and uh, I couldn't resist. 
So I went to speak to a Barry Gordachuk who had taken over the Mad Trapper, and he came up from Alberta with his family and was living above the Trapper, and uh, he was going to run the Trapper, and he was a new guy. And so I went in. I took advantage of that changeover. I said, Barry, I said, I've got a band. Uh, I said, I didn't say i got a band. I said, I could get a band together if you can give me uh, two or three months or six nights a week. I can bring them up from New Brunswick and we can play. Great, he says. So I phone up Tony, my old <laughs> friend drummer from Fredericton, phone him up at the music store. I said, Tony, I need a bass player and a drummer up here. Do you have anybody in mind? He says, yeah, he says, I know a good guy, uh, Derek Briggs. Just uh, got out of high school and doesn't know what he wants to do. He's been in here to the music store asking if he could give lessons because he's a really good bass player. I said, wow, I said, that's excellent. And uh, I said, what about a drummer? He said, well, there's a guy uh, guy named Danny Thomas, and he plays in a band. He says, they're pretty heavy. They do a lot of Led Zeppelin stuff. I said, well, have you seen him play? And Tony says, well, I've only seen him play once. He was playing at the festival down here, and uh, they rode on the street in the middle of the day and uh, playing on the back of a flatbed truck. And <laughs> Tony says, he's pretty loud, though. I said, that's my guy. <laughs> Send him up. <laughs> I send them down the tickets. I'm paying for the tickets, right? It was big money still, the tickets in those days. I send them down. These two guys get the tickets. They come up on the plane with their with their guitars and a change of clothes and not much else. Uh, and I'd made a deal with Barry Gordachuk. He'd put them up, up above the Mad Trapper. There were some crummy rooms up there. He puts them up. We go to a back room in the uh, behind the school that wasn't being used. Ran through, uh, I didn't want to go in totally cold, so we ran through a week of rehearsals, and I had a pretty good bead on what was happening. And uh, they they both turned out to be really more than adequate players. And, uh, the, of course, they got better as we went along, and our repertoire went along, you know. So uh, I got down to the McKenzie Hotel. They recently got a new manager, Mo Elbardo from Lebanon. Mo. Moses Albardo, a Christian from Lebanon, but he looked like an Arab. <laughs> and his name was Mo. Everybody thought it was Mohammed, right? But it wasn't. It was Moses. Anyway, Mo. He's up there with his family and two children. I walk in there and introduce myself. I said, uh, Mo, you know, I, we had a band there down at the Mad Trapper. He says, I heard. I heard you guys are pretty good. I said, I, I wonder if you could take us on uh, here at the uh, McKenzie Hotel. He says, well, I've got the Mackenzie Delta Band in here uh, right now, you know, the boys. I said, well, I said, they've been in there for three or four months, you know. I said, he says, well, you're right, you know. He's new. It's probably time. He says, I'm here. I'm It's probably right for a change, you know. This is where the story gets a little sticky. <laughs> <laughs> where resentments <laughs> still flower in certain places. He let the Mackenzie Delta Band go. It's a dirty business. Everybody should know that. Hired us on. Nine months. Six nights a week. Rehearsal on Sunday. Nine months. But we were raking it in. We were raking in the dough. We played New Year's Eve. This was shortly before we finished playing as a band. We knew the end would come, and I knew when that 
came, I wasn't going to be playing around the Nuvik at arena dances anymore. So I, we all knew the, the end was coming. In the meantime, Briggsy got himself a job with NTCL, which he's held now for 30 years, became a manager, raised a family, living in Yellowknife, about to retire. Danny, who had dropped out of high school and was working as a bouncer because he was big, he was a good man to have on drums, six foot four, you know, don't mess with the band. He was excellent. He saved my neck several times. Uh, got a job at the liquor store, got a job cleaning out airplanes, got a job doing this, got a job doing that, was working with us six nights a week, saved his money, went back to Fredericton, enrolled as an adult student in university, finished his BA in three years, uh, did an exchange tour of Germany and Russia, got a master's degree in Russian history, and became a school teacher in Ontario, and then later became a union negotiator, and he retires this year. Wow. Neither of them ever played music again. <laughs> <laughs> ever. Ever. Daddy never touched the drums again. <laughs> Briggsy. Briggsy never touched the bass again. <laughs> Nine... Nine months, six days a week. <laughs> Drained them, did them in. I don't know. I was flying high. I was able to do it. I was able to teach school. I did a good job up there. I have no, no regrets. After the three years, it was we. In the meantime, because of the first stint in in uh, Anuvik, we were able to buy an old schoolhouse in New Brunswick. So did three more years in Anuvik. Left. And uh, flew back to New Brunswick and uh, existed there for another three years. So it was three years Brooks, Alberta, three years New Brunswick, three years in Newvik, three years New Brunswick, three years in Newvik, three years New Brunswick. I get a call from an old friend of mine, Ted Curtis, who's now working in Yellowknife. He says, Jim, I hear you're not teaching full-time down there in New Brunswick. No, I wasn't. I was playing with a country band, making $100 a night, playing once a week. Yeah, Ted, I probably need a job. He said, uh, there's an interesting position opening up at a school called Sir John Franklin in Yellowknife. I said, really? He says, yeah. He says, you'll know some of the people there, and uh, your references from Anuvik will be very helpful. I make the phone call. I speak to the people. The health papers arrive in the mail. The tickets arrive in the mail. The contract arrives in the mail. I sign the line. We go to Fredericton. We get on the plane. We come to Yellowman. I, I come up by myself to clear the way. I get off the plane in Yellowknife. I don't know anybody. Ted, in the meantime, has returned to Anuvik. Don't know anybody. I get off the plane. I'm feeling alone. Take a taxi to the Twin Pines Motel. Book into the Twin Pines. Sitting there feeling sort of alone and depressed but happy because I have a really good job coming up and I'm going to be able to make money again. And... Uh, I step out of my Twin Pines motel room, my second night in Yellowknife, and I 
look around, and I look to my left, and a guy comes out the door in the room next to me, and it's a guy named William Greenland, whom I taught in Inuvik years previous. Mr. Lawrence, William. You can call me Jim. Jim, <laughs> William. What are you doing here? I'm here to teach school. Oh, he says, where are you going? I said, I don't know. I just came out to look around. I don't know. Maybe go. I see the town is up that way. I didn't know anything. Well, I did. I'd looked at some maps and stuff. I don't want to sound totally ignorant. but I said, well, I was just going to walk uptown. And uh, he says, oh, great. He says, do you have any instruments with you? I said, well, I got a couple of harmonicas, which I always carried harmonicas from that point on, always. I had two or three harmonicas. Went back to the motel room, picked up a couple of harps. He says, we got to go up to, uh, there's a place up here called Bar Expo 2000. What a bar expo, 2000. He says, yeah, he says, every Thursday night, I guess it was Thursday, every Thursday night they have a talent contest. And I said, oh, far out. And we're walking up. I said, yeah, I said, I'll go in, you know, and check out the talent contest, got my harmonics. I said, uh, what do you get if you win? William says, $300. <laughs> I look at him and just, $300? He said, yeah, he says, like, it's really popular. A lot of people come, the place will be just packed. We go in, the place is just packed. It's just just bad talent on stage. <laughs> bad, bad talent. <laughs> Doing things, right? I said to William, I said, well, you know, you know, in the back of my mind, being a professional musician, like this just doesn't feel fair. I said, okay. I said, I'll go, I'll, I'll go up and I'll just do a brief little thing, just to, you know, say... Ladies and gentlemen, I've got a man here from uh, all the way from New Brunswick, and he's going to come up here, and uh, I think he's a, he says he's going to play some harmonica. <laughs> I walk out, I take my, walk out, I take my little marine band out from my pocket. I, to that point, I hadn't figured out what I was going to play. I looked down at the crowd, sort of paying attention or not. I grabbed the mic. I, I decided to play what they call the train song. The train song, wow, wow, open with the big wow, wow, no, to do all this crazy stuff. So I did the train thing. I'm about 15 seconds into it. I got them all stomping their feet, you know, like in time to the train thing, and I'm urging them on. They're all they're up and they're stomping, doing the whistle and all that. Then the train slows down, whoa, whoa, and they all start sitting down in their seats, whoa, in the train. 60 seconds. Our winter night is uh, that guy from New Brunswick. Three $100 bills. I give one to William. <laughs> Way to go, William. Oh, what a lead. You know, so we go back, we go out, we go on the town, I see all the places, there's bands playing, there's stuff happening. All of a sudden I'm starting to feel, all right, you know, I can probably live here, you know, <laughs> I'm gonna be able to survive here. Go back to the motel, I keep in touch with William and go up to the schools, going good, I've got my classes. Principals okay, classes are nice, school's nice, students are pretty good. Sort of an international community of students, you know, five Dene groups and Nuvi Alouites and two Inuk groups and Newfoundlanders and Albertans and Polish people and Chinese people. <laughs> My classes were like United Nations. I loved it. I loved it. Spent nine really good years there. Anyway, back to uh, back to the Twin Pines Motel. So I'm in there for a couple of weeks before my family is coming up to join me. Uh, I've been assigned an apartment. Uh, I forget what they were called. Sort of a crummy apartment downtown. And uh, the next Thursday comes. And get my harmonicas. I head to Bar Expo 2000. I get to the door. and 
my better senses overtake me. I realize I'm in Yellowknife for a while. I belong to the American Federation of Musicians. You know, I uh, can't go in and win another three hundred dollars. <laughs> would be would be unseemly. About a month later, maybe two, Bar Expo 2000 is no longer. It's gone. I'm not sure if it turned into the Hall of Fame or if they were separate. I'm pretty sure that was the same same person. Same, same, same place. Same people were living. It's no wonder they went broke, giving out $300 a night for a talent show. You know? <laughs> anyway, Bar Expo 2000. So I, I didn't. I, I stopped at the door, and I'm happy because uh, I was later able to uh, enjoy working in the uh, Yellowknife musical community. It would have been unseemly the entering talent shows and <laughs> playing 60 seconds. It's the best money I ever earned in my life. 60 seconds for $300. I'm not sure what it is. It's $5 a second, I think. <laughs> I don't think you're going to find that again. No, no. That was my best paying gig ever. Yellowknife Bar Expo 2000. Well, that's a great, great introduction to town. It sure. was. <laughs> and then as I was teaching at the school, uh, not quite certain how I entered into the music thing. I've talked about this with various people from time to time. But uh, I met the gumboots who were on the go. I met I met uh, I met the the comatics who were on the go. I met Pat Braden and Unglowich and the blah 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 on and on and George Tuckeroo, all kinds of people who were involved with musical stuff in Yellowknife. I remember sitting in on some gigs and so on. And uh, then I discovered the jams at the Gold Range, uh, which could be extremely uh, painful but mighty educational for me. And I spent the next nine years going to as many of them as I could with a selection of harmonicas and attempting to get up on stage and to participate, maybe play by myself with a guitar or something, but try to play harmonica and help make other people sound better and get my licks down. By then I had, I hopefully matured a bit as a musician, no longer desired to be the center of attention or whatever. And that's why I think I've reverted in uh, my older years back to the harmonica. Uh, and it, I, owe, I owe a lot of it to, I hate to say it, but the jams of the Gold Range mm -hmm. Hotel, you know, learning to integrate. And then uh, once again, we could call it serendipity or strangeness interlude in my life. I had absolutely no desire, certainly not to do six nights a week. I really had no desire to even play recreationally. I was just happy to go and tinker away at the Gold Range or do some folky stuff for the gumboots or, you know. And then there was a northern show at Knack and uh, CBC was involved I'm not sure if it was Arctic Winter Games or if it was the Northern Showcase True North Concerts or one of those and I'm not sure how I was involved uh, but it was either one of the CBC people or one of the gumboots or it could have been even might have even been Pat Braden or Norm Glowage. It's a long time ago. I was approached to be 
part of a backup band for the other performers. And I really didn't want to do that. I, I didn't want to get involved. I knew there would be rehearsals and other people. And I was I had a very intense job at the high school, which I was immersed in. I was directing drama at the high school. I had a life as a high school teacher, good life. I transmitted the news that I would be happy to play two or three numbers with a band or on my own, but I didn't want to be part, part of a backup band. And so I arrive at the Somebody said, okay, let's try that. Let's do that. I remember uh, arriving at the uh, at NAC, and there was Pat Braden on bass, electric bass guitar, and Norm Glowich with drums set up. And uh, the duct tape was off the case by then, but I, I got out the old Les Paul. Didn't have an amplifier that was working. Uh, headed down to Knack and got in there backstage and met Pat and Norm and I might have met them before but that wasn't a big deal and we got together and I strummed a few chords <clears throat> really wasn't much rehearsal because we were just going to do something standard and I think we did uh, a Bo Diddley number a Chuck Berry number Maybe even a Johnny Cash number. I'm I'm not sure. I think it was the CBC guy during the introduction said, uh, well, what can we classify your music as in this show? And I told him it's traditional saloon music. <laughs> and I'll always remember the announcer coming up and saying, now from Yellowknife, <laughs> playing traditional saloon music. <laughs> Mr. Pat Braden, Mr. Norm Glowich, and Jim Lawrence. Mr. Lawrence, Mr. Jim Lawrence. And we come out and uh, we did our thing and we closed Bo Diddley with a Bo Diddley number and sort of killed. I, I, remember, I remember people coming to their feet, you know, like we're getting a standing O at Knack for playing Bo Diddley. And we went off stage pretty pleased with ourselves, as I remember. And somebody, maybe... Maybe Pat Braden, I can't remember, said, you know, we should do this again. And then I thought back on it when I got got home, and I said, we didn't even rehearse for the gig. <laughs> we didn't even rehearse these numbers, and they worked. And I forget how it happened next, but I think we got together for one little brief rehearsal, and it was, I know a place where we can play. There's this bar, the float bass. I'm not sure if that was our first gig at Yellowknife. It's all a bit of a blur now. I was pretty busy at the time. And we started a three-piece rockin' rhythm and blues band. We named it the Red Devil Rockin' Blues Band. We played innumerable gigs in Yellowknife and were in residence at the float base for many, many weeks and many, many nights. Played some concerts, played some dances. As I recall, we each made a hundred dollars a night each. <laughs> it was a, that's about what it was. I think a hundred dollars a night. Right, I was right back where I started when I was in high school. Hundred dollars a night, but I didn't care. I I don't think any of us, any of the three of us, were ever really in it for the money. And I can distinctly remember after a hard driving work week at school on a Friday. And I was waiting for that bell on Friday. 
uh, despite the hard work week, I was getting energized, energized. I'd go home, I'd have a little snack, and I'd wait till 9 o'clock we would start at the float base. 8.30, 8.40, I'd uh, pack up the Les Paul in a case. I had a metal case now, not a cardboard case. <laughs> I'd pack it up and I'd grab a cab and head down to that float base. And I would be energized when I went in. I had more energy than I had the rest of the week. I'd get in there and we'd start at 9, 40 minutes on, 20 minutes off. 40 minutes on, 20 minutes off. 40 minutes on, 20 minutes off, and a little stinger at the end to get people out of the bar. And I can say it in all honesty, I don't remember a bad gig. I remember sometimes when the music wasn't what it should be, but still the gig wasn't bad. I don't, I don't, I never remember walking away from one of those gigs shaking my head saying, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. It was a... It was a great time for me musically, good time for me teaching, great time musically. And uh, I don't think we ever rehearsed. Just things fell into place naturally. The three of us didn't have to talk about it. It just happened musically, and it, it sounds trite and ridiculous, but was a, a sort of a magic or a chemistry. It's a, I think it occurs in all of the arts. I think it occurs for painters. I think it occurs for architects. I, think, I don't think it's exclusive to music. But when you get three disparate characters like we were, from uh, different backgrounds and different, and it just it works, it works, it works, and it worked, and it worked, and it worked, and uh, it worked until the day I uh, until the day I it partially died, which is when I left Yellowknife. It was time to return to uh, New Brunswick. My wife was into painting as a profession, doing big paintings. We had a beautiful place in New Brunswick. Uh, I'd earned enough money to get back there and to be able to survive for a couple of years without working. And uh, that's basically what happened. I went back to New Brunswick. Uh, I didn't. I hardly touched the guitar except for a brief interlude, playing a little bit of three-piece music. I retired from teaching in 2010. Picked up an acoustic guitar. Did a solo show for five years. Played festivals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Put that down. Didn't play for about a year and a half. And now I'm back in Yellowknife. With some harmonicas doing a music interview. I'm just sitting here waiting for somebody to pass me a hundred dollars. Not going to happen, is it? Yes, yes it will, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it will. Um, wow, that's anyway, a, that's part of the story. That's, uh, I saw lots of musicians along the way. I saw lots of great shows. Uh, but I owe my I owe my musical debts uh, to the Northwest Territories in, in many respects. Uh, I still think it's a land of opportunity, although a lot of the opportunities are being blown and wasted, as we know. Uh, you know, maybe hopefully some of that spirit will come back and, uh, and people can continue to earn a hundred bucks a night for making pleasant sounds for the benefit of others. I would like to thank Jim for sharing his rich musical life story with musicians of the Midnight Sun. To hear more, see photographs of his life, and the full interview transcript, check out musiciansofthemidnightsun.com, linked in the show notes. You can follow along as well on Facebook and Instagram. If you would like to support the continuation of this project, 
please donate it on our website, musiciansofthemidnightsun.com. I would like to thank the City of Yellowknife Heritage Committee and the Northwest Territories Creative Industries Economic Recovery Fund for supporting this podcast series. And to thank the Northwest Territories Arts Council, Government of the Northwest Territories, Department of Education, Culture and Employment, the Yellowknife Community Foundation, and the City of Yellowknife Heritage Committee for supporting the website so far. A full list of supporters can be found on the website. The archival audio of this podcast is from the Northern Musicians Project Collection at the Northwest Territories Archives. I'm Pat Brayton. Thanks for listening.